Would you give Jeff a warm welcome? And thanks for leading worship this morning as well. Thank Jeff, you. appreciate that. Now, I don't normally, I don't necessarily do that, and I'm like really sweaty right now. So <laughs> um, that was fun. I really love having you guys here. Uh, what a blessing it is to everybody here at Mount Hill Community Church, but it, and it's a blessing to me. It's a blessing to the Lord Jesus to hear all of your voices raised, lifted up uh, for the King of Kings. I am Jeff. Here I am. Hi. We are going to continue through the book of Acts. we got a huge section. So what time does the rally start? Uh, 11. 11. Oh, yeah, I don't, that's not what I heard. Well, if it starts at 3, we've got you know, a couple hours here. So I'm just kidding. Uh, Acts chapter 6. If you have your Bible, would you please turn to Acts chapter 6? If you have your phone, you can turn there as well. But I'm also going to have a lot of the scriptures up here on the screen as well. So because it's such a big section, what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through Acts 6 and 7, and we're just going to talk about it. We're going to look at the narration of it, and I'm going to point out a few things that I noticed, uh, and also what we can take away from Acts chapter 6 and 7. Just as a reminder, Acts is written by Dr. Luke. He wrote the book of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts, and he witnessed personally a lot of the events that took place in the book of Acts, and he had the ability to interview firsthand witnesses of all of the events surrounding Jesus, as well as what was happening in the early church. So what I want to do is I want to backtrack just a little bit and talk about what's happening leading up into chapter 6. So we're going to backtrack it back up into uh, chapter 4. And what's happening with the early church? What does the church look like? It's newly formed. It has been birthed out of the spirit of Jesus. And people are coming together, and they are now gathering, and they're coming in droves. So what's happening? Number one, the church is unified here in chapter 4. The full number of those who, were belie- of, who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So that's one thing that's happening. Number two, the church is full of power and grace. Again from chapter four, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was on them all. And number three, they're super generous. There's generosity pouring out of them. There was not a needy person among them for as many were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feast and was distributed to each as any had need. Let's recap. Here's what the church looked like in chapter 4. Unity, full of power and grace, and generosity. I think that's a pretty good model. That's a good model of the church. That's what we want to model our church here. That's what the church of Jesus Christ should look like. Unified in one heart and soul, full of the Holy Spirit, and giving from our abundance to support the church. Does that, what does that look like for you in your life? Does that exemplify you personally? Does that exemplify our church? Maybe for some, maybe for, maybe not, maybe not. Let's pray about that. Would you bow with me? Lord, we ask this morning for you to move within us, to empower us, to fill us with all wisdom and power and strength. Lord, open my heart to hear from you and to show me how I can participate 
in this church. Lord, show me where I might be holding back that would prevent me from being one heart and soul with others here at Mount Helena Community Church. Lord, fill me through your Holy Spirit to be full of power and grace. Lord, help me to lead a lifestyle of generosity so that I can give my time, energy, financial resources as a blessing to this church. Lord, if there's something in me holding back from unity or letting the Spirit lead my life or from lavish generosity, Lord, would you strip it from me and replace it with your Spirit? Forgive me of my sin, Lord, my selfishness, my self-focus, and help me to give of myself to others so that they would know you and love you and serve you. And thank you for your word and caring for us and giving us a model on how to live in community with other believers and carry out your mission here on earth. Amen. It's a struggle to live out that mission. It really is. You know, it was a struggle for the early church too because then we go to chapter 5. And there's a couple that lies about their finances, claiming they're generous when in fact they hid money and God strikes them dead. And the church leaders are arrested because they're speaking the truth and they're warned to shut their mouths or else. And the blows and attacks keep coming from every side. Persecution, sin. And now we move to chapter 6. We got problems. We got more problems. Problems that we created ourselves in the church arising out of God's blessings. We're going to read the first seven verses of Acts. We're going to break this into two sections. The first seven verses of Acts, chapter 6, and then through the rest. Now in these days, the disciples were increasing in number. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. We'll talk about that in a minute. Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give, that should be give, not gibe, give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Pumbaa, just kidding, Timon, Time, Timon, Timon, I don't know, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, and they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid hands on them. So I was talking to my 14-year-old about this, what I was speaking about, and she's like, Dad, can you just explain to me in plain English what exactly is happening? So I thought it would be good to just explain to you all, since I think we have a lot of 14-year-olds here. I don't know. It would be a good, just let's break it down. What's happening here? Okay. Oh, we forgot chapter, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Okay, now let's break it down. Okay. The church is growing and conflict continues. The church is getting bigger. People are super generous, giving to others who have needs, so there's more than enough to go around. But there's two kinds of Jews that are there. There's the Hellenists and the Hebrews. The Hellenists are the Greek-speaking Jews that have been influenced by the Greek culture, and the Hebrews are the Jewish they're the, they're the Jewish Hebraic Jews from the greater Jerusalem and Judea area. 
Okay, let me give you an example of what this would look like. Let's say that we decided to start a church, and we brought a thousand Chinese Christians over, and we combined our church. Do you think there might be cultural problems? Yes. How we do things, how we respond to one another, it's very challenging. So apparently they're not getting along, and they disagree with how to treat single women. There's lots of finances coming in, but we have to divide up who's getting what. And the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, decide we're being treated unfairly. Our widows, our single women are being treated unfairly. I'm a baseball umpire. I know what it's like for people to constantly complain at me that I am being unfair. Uh, I did a game yesterday between Whitefish and Billings, and one of the, I won't say who, one of the coaches told me that I, I wanted the other team to win. Do you think that I care who wins in a game, in a high school game, whom I have never met you before, between Billings and Whitefish? <laughs> the apostles are being accused of being unfair. So just like Moses trying to judge every single complaint, they decide we have to do something and that the organizational model isn't working anymore. We have to do something. We have to expand our leadership structure to serve both physical and spiritual needs. We have to prioritize both. We have been prioritizing the logistics of serving physical food or what they call serving tables and in turn, we're neglecting the spiritual food the church needed as well. We are missing the forest for the trees. We miss the bigger picture. Now, I'm incredibly guilty of that. I don't know if you are. Uh, I'll just, for instance, I have a tendency to focus on tasks and getting things done and miss the greater purpose of something. I do this with my kids all the time. I made dinner, I got them fed, I read a book, I sang them songs. I said some prayers, I put them to bed, and I got it all done. But in the meantime, I stomped all over their feelings, I yelled at them, I shamed them, I alienated them, and the goal of parenting is to train them to be honorable adults and to serve the Lord. But I acted like the goal to get them to bed was me to catch up on putting away the dishes, catching up on Instagram, catching up on text messages, catching up on sleep. Can you relate to this? That's just one example of us missing the point. But the disciples caught it early, and they wanted to make sure their priorities were on point. They wanted to make sure their focus was on preaching, prayer, and ministry of the word, because that's what they were called to, not on serving tables. So what does that mean? If we go back and look, if you look, it says, we need to find someone who are serving tables. It sounds like uh, it's beneath them, but that's not what they're saying. The original Greek term gives... The importance, it's serving physical needs. It's more of an administrative type gift. And they put it on par with the work of prayer and preaching. The apostles serve the word and the table servers serve physical needs. Their service is qualitatively the same, but the tasks and the skills are different. And both are essential for God's people and for the witness to the world. And we know those table servers by their Greek name, diakonos, or deacons. 
the life of the church community depends on their form of service. And Luke does not say that one is more important than the other. Next observation. When choosing leaders, integrity mattered. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. The apostles were not willing to put people who were ill-prepared in character and ability and roles they couldn't handle. And they didn't want to hoard all of the ministry opportunities for themselves, so they delegated. And Paul reaffirms this in 1 Timothy when he's talking about the qualifications of a deacon. Sound faith, good, honorable Christian reputation, active involvement, personal integrity, maturity, holiness, faithfulness, honorable, evidence of recognized ongoing commitment to the church's life and service. Okay. So it mattered. But why does it matter to us? What can we learn? So I pulled out a couple of things that I think that we can learn from this story. Number one, we can expect distractions for our church. While the church grew, Satan unleashed persecution, and the apostles countered with a bold faith and mighty prayer. And then during the season of ultra-generosity, compromise crept in, and they, they counted with discipline. In this story, the church has the ability to meet needs generously, and the people begin squabbling, and the leaders are completely drained meeting their needs. We can expect distractions. They will come. It is promised. In our church, we have continued to see it, and we expect it. Financial difficulties, people with hurt feelings, people leaving, health problems, death, sin, Distractions with politics, social media, opinions, people deconstructing their faith. All of these things have crept in. But your leaders, the elders here, we are rock solid and committed to unity. It was drilled into me from the very moment that I was asked to consider becoming an elder. That was like the first thing. We will be unified. We're going to work through trouble together. We're going to communicate. We're going to reject conflict tearing us apart. And through it all, God calls us all to be unified. Resist the devil. Encourage one another. Build community and live the mission. Let's stick together and not let the accuser get a foothold. One heart, one soul, one mind together. Number two we got to adapt. Change is inevitable. Problems arise, and we have to pivot to meet needs and challenges just like the apostles did. That's a pretty self-explanatory. Another self-explanatory thing is chain, growing pains are inevitable. Does growth come out of pain, or does pain come out of growth? Yes. This is the cycle of spiritual and numerical growth. The church grows, problems arise, or the church can grow out of problems. Same with the early church. That's exactly what was happening. Number four, humility, not status, is esteemed. If you are called to serve the word of God, you shouldn't neglect serving the word in order to do something else. And likewise, if you are called to serving tables, 
you shouldn't neglect serving tables in order to do something else. People are called to different tasks, and there is no biblical reason to regard some callings higher than others. I remember the first time that I came to this church, and uh, I went to, I went to um, a Christian college, and I have a degree in uh, pastoral ministry, and I led worship, and I did all sorts of stuff, and I walked into this church, and I walked up to the senior pastor at the time. His name is Brian, and I said, hey, Brian, just want to let you know, <clears throat> if you need anyone to lead worship, I'm your guy. Oh, I have lots of experience preaching. You need anyone to preach? I'm your man. I was 25. <laughs> now, you may think 25 is old, but it is not old. He says, okay, that is good, good news. I am really excited that you're able to do that. But I do have something I would like you to do first. What I would like you to do is I would like you to invite people to your house and serve them. I would like you to invite people over for dinner and get to know them. Also, we need help stacking chairs. We also need a bunch of young men to help people move. And I was like, what a waste of my talent. (laughs) Now I'm 47, yes, 47, and I see absolute wisdom in what he was asking me to do. Jeff, let's see if you are of good repute, full of the spirit, full of wisdom. Let's see if you're faithful with a small thing, with what you've been given, with what we're calling you to do. Let go of status and recognition. Let's see if you're capable of being a table server. In the kingdom of God, we are all needed. We're all of one body. Now, I'm standing up in front of you. It just happened to work out that I did some worship today, and I'm up here. I normally don't do that. I haven't been up here in a, in a while. But my question, there's, there's someone I continually bring up. I bring, every time I'm up here, because I am amazed at him, showing up before 8 o'clock every morning and opening the doors and making coffee and cleaning up after all of you when it's all done and putting everything out. His name is Marv, and you see him, okay? Now I have a question. In the kingdom of God... With what I have just said, with what I have just said, who is more important in the kingdom of God, me or him? No. (laughs) Where are you called? Are you called to serving tables? Are you called to serving the word? But in all of it, we have to prioritize humility. It is not about status in God's kingdom. We have to empower future leaders. It is critical for the church to raise up future generations of word servers and table servers. We must prioritize it. That is discipleship. And eventually, one of those table servers, Stephen we read about, turns out to be even more gifted as a preacher than most of the apostles. And yet, despite his preaching gift, he is set aside for the service 
of resource distribution. He's called to serve tables. At that moment, at least, it was more important for him to follow God's purposes as a table server than a word server. Okay, we're going to keep reading in Acts chapter 6. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, just a little background, these are guys that were like kicked out of Rome because they were too Jewish, so they moved back to Jerusalem. It was, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia. Cilicia is also important. It's a little note here, because that's where Saul was from. He was from Cilicia. And they rose up and they disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the, and the spirit by which he was speaking. And then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, and they seized him, and they brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and this law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. In other words, our temple is important, and you're saying unkind things about it. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. Quick recap. Okay? What we just read is they are hot. They are hot. Because Stephen is full of grace and the Spirit, and he's using the Holy Spirit to speak words that cut like a knife into these leaders, these Jewish leaders, and they cannot withstand it. So what do they do? The only thing that they can do, false accusations and physical abuse. They're accusing him of spreading false information about this man named Jesus, and they don't believe his message. And the message was, this temple is not necessary to worship God. So they incite men to falsely testify against Stephen that he speaks against Moses, God, and the temple. So then we jump to chapter 7, which is his defense. He says, brothers and fathers, hear me. Now his defense is 55 verses long. We don't have time to do that today unless you guys want to hang out and and read it all. But I'm going to recap for you. Um, what he does is he launches into a long history, a long history of the recounting of the history of Israel. Just to recap, he starts with the patriarchs of Israel. If you have your Bible, you can see we're going all the way into verse 50. Um, he talks about Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, then he follows with Joseph, the enforced slavery of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the burning bush, the emancipation of Israel, the rejection of God by his people, the subsequent 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. He basically recaps the first five <clears throat> books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And then he talks a little bit about David and Solomon <clears throat> and the building of the temple. But then, in verse 51, he breaks off the retelling, and he turns blunt criticism against the descendants of those who killed and persecuted God's prophets. 
He says this, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Let me rephrase what he's saying. When the prophets came to speak the word of God and realign your hearts to the Father, you rejected them and their words. You persecuted them, you killed them, and now you have done the very same thing to the one of whom they spoke about, the one who was promised, who is even greater than them, the Messiah, the righteous one. And you're like your fathers in every way. Sin, rebellion against God, rejection of his purpose are your modus operandi. You have prioritized your temple and your laws over the very one who gave you these things. Oh, oh my. And so when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped up their ears, la, 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 and they rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. They threw stones at him, big old stones. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. In other words, he dead. Now what I want to do is I want to take a sneak peek into chapter 8. Maybe I shouldn't do this, but it's the first line. And Saul approved of his execution. What can we learn from this passage? What can we learn from the life of Stephen? I'm I'm not going to go over, there's lots of things we can pull out. I'm going to pull two things out. Two. Number one, Stephen's godly character was the foundation of his courageous witness. A man full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, full of power, doing great wonders and signs among the people, and all of this set the table for his powerful witness. He was, conf- he was confronting sin with Holy Spirit power. And the only way the Hellenistic Jews could stand up to him was through false witness, lying, and physically harming him. They couldn't match him in truth. They couldn't match him in integrity and character. But how does Stephen respond to their anger, their vitriol, and their aggression and abuse? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Do not hold this sin against them. Someone else said something very similar at his death. Hmm? Father, forgive them, for they do not know 
what they are doing. It's the Lord Jesus. Maybe you have seen lies in our culture or lies in the church or false witness or persecution. In order to stand against that, we must elect the right officials to punch back at them. That seems a little out of character. We must let the Holy Spirit fill and empower us, grow us into maturity, and build our character to confront evil. We don't confront evil with anger and vitriol and abuse, but with truth and love and forgiveness. That is a hard teaching because I want to lash back. And it would have been easy for Stephen to lash back, but he did not. Truth, love, and most of all, forgiveness. Second thing we can learn. Godly, courageous witnesses must leave the results up to God. He was faithful to the calling put on his life. And what happened to him? He died. He became the church's first martyr, killed for his faith. How does that make sense? To sacrifice a godly man of his caliber after such a short ministry seems illogical and inefficient to me. And then God allows a scoundrel like Caiaphas, who is the head of the Sanhedrin, the head of the Jewish council, he gets to be over the head of the Jews for like 20 years. Why wouldn't he just strike this wicked man dead and allow Stephen and the other godly men to have long and fruitful ministries? How does that make any sense? Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people and good things to happen to bad people? Why would God allow my daughter to die? That doesn't make sense. Why would God allow such evil in the world to happen? That doesn't make sense. Jesus, I followed you. Why won't you heal me? Don't you know that I love you? It doesn't make sense. The overarching story of Acts 6 and 7 is to help us see the early church face-to-face with two major reasons why people walk away from the faith. Hurt from the church and the problem of pain and suffering. The Bible does not shy away from highlighting these issues. The Bible is not afraid of questions of doubt or hurt or potential corruption, and we shouldn't be afraid of them either. We do not need to apologize for them. It's been throughout the course of the church, the course of the history of mankind. What I want to do is I want to cross-link this Acts chapter 6 and 7 with a story from Mark 1. I'm just going to tell you the story. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to tell you. Jesus has begun his ministry, and he's casting out demons, and he's healing people. And it says, he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And he spends like all day healing people, like all day. 
People are coming left and right. He's healing them left and right. The next day, disciples get up, and they're like, sweet, we're going to do this again. Let's go. Yes. And they can't find him. Where the heck is he? He's like completely disappeared. Because he left while it was still dark to go to a desolate place by himself to pray. So the disciples go out looking for him. And after a bunch of service searching, they're like, where the heck have you been? Everyone is looking for you. Why is everyone looking for them, for him? Because they want him to heal them, right? That's what they want. We want Jesus to completely heal me. And what Jesus responds is so curious. This has really helped me understand my faith. Let's go on to the next towns so that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. What? There are people waiting for Jesus to set their life right, to heal them. And Jesus walks away and says, I came to preach the good news of the kingdom. That's the bigger mission of why I came. That's what's more important. Bad things happen to good people, but sin kills. And I am here to preach salvation to the lost that they may be found. And that is the bigger mission. Stephen saw the bigger picture out of the questions of conflict, division, and suffering. And he followed the footsteps of his master. Great things come out of pain. In chapter 6, out of complaining and potential division, new servant leaders are born. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y. Does that bother you? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it. You can't help yourself. (laughs) Chapter 7 leaves us on a cliffhanger. Stephen is murdered. What good can come from his death? You have to come back next week. You got to find out what happens. And we're going to walk through chapter 8. Saul has witnessed a good man murdered, and Paul, the apostle of the Mediterranean world, is about to be born. The church will rise up and flourish. Beauty will rise from ashes. Come back next week, and we'll explore the beginning of the explosion of the church into the world. Would you stand with me, please? I'm going to pray. Lord, you are so good. Thank you for your word and your blessing. Help us to trust you in the midst of pain and trouble. Help us to see the bigger picture. When we have conflict, we have to prioritize unity, the power of grace, and the Holy Spirit, and generosity. Lord, let growth and beauty rise up out of us. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. 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 Thank you, Jeff.